Praised are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who gives the Torah, the law of truth, and the good news of salvation to his people Israel and to all peoples through his Son, Yeshua our Lord. And to him, Lord, we come today in his name, that you will be powerfully present in our midst today, that your word will be implanted on our hearts, burned on our hearts even as it was burned on the stone tablets on the mountain 3,500 years ago. And I pray, Father, that as the word is implanted on our minds, on our hearts, that we in turn will reflect the truth of that word in everything we do and everything we say, that we will not be guided by natural principles, that we won't be guided by just the law of our land, but by the greater law, the law of the king of the universe. Lord, I pray that as we look today at what your word said, says concerning the beginning of the occupation of the land, that you will be powerfully present with us in speaking to each of our hearts. I pray for your blessing upon each one here today. Father, there are a wide variety of needs represented here, and I pray that you will meet those needs according to your great power. And Father, as the word is proclaimed throughout this complex this morning, we ask for your anointing and your empowering in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Last week, we were studying from the first passage of the third chapter of Joshua. And in, in the fourth verse, I highlighted the fact at the end of the verse, it told us that, it told us that the Israelites were to remain 2,000 cubits or a kilometer behind the Ark of the Covenant as it went forward into the river. And at, it, at the end of that passage, it says, that you may know the way which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And I emphasized several possibilities of the meaning of that. And uh, just before class, uh, Gordon Waggy brought up another possibility I hadn't really thought of, which I think is appropriate here. And that is that Joshua had probably been this way before because he was one of the 12 original spies that had gone in 38 years before and been all through the land. And it's possible he had been down to Jericho before. At least he'd been all through the land, and whatever the case may be, he certainly uh, would have noted some of the, you know, of the truths about Jericho and, and that particular region. So they hadn't been this way before, but uh, as far as he was concerned, he may have been. So I, I thought that was a good point. Let's read beginning verse 14 of chapter 3. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those which were flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who stood, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Can you imagine the excitement here? Can you imagine the thrill in the heart of the people? as they set out to follow the ark, and the ark is marching down towards this flooding river. No boats, no bridge. They're walking towards the river, trusting in what God is going to do. Most of these people had been born after the miracle of the Red Sea. 
They had heard about the miracle, of course, ever since their youth. But the bulk of them had not actually witnessed it. And now what are they doing? They're anticipating a miracle performed by God in the sight of their own eyes. One that would be at least of the same caliber as the one that allowed Israel to cross the Red Sea. The Jordan River is definitely smaller than the Red Sea. But if you halt the flow of a river at flood stage and you pile the water up, I think it's an awesome sight. Especially because we're told that the river was at flood stage. And this is you know, not just a happenstance comment. It's a comment to underscore the greatness of this miracle. It happened while the Jordan was at flood. Now, those of you who have been in Israel know that uh, the, quote, mighty Jordan isn't exactly a mighty river as we think of rivers. I mean, the Sacramento over here is much larger than the Jordan, except possibly at flood stage. And so this is underscored here. And it says that it was at flood stage here because we read at the uh, end of uh, verse 15, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. What does that mean? What are they talking about here? Well, what they must be talking about is the barley harvest because the barley harvest comes early. Barley harvests earlier than wheat does and uh, the barley harvest usually comes in April. April would be appropriate time for the water to be rising uh, mightily on the Jordan because of the melting snows of Mount Hermon, because of the rain that fell in the uh, springtime there in that part of the world. It must have been a real test of faith for these priests. They pick up the ark by its uh, poles and they march down toward the river, eyes on the river, marching down towards the river. They're on the front. (laughs) They are the focus of all the attention of all the people because the people are back 2,000 cubits, following slowly as they are marching down towards the river, carrying the ark of the covenant. And of course, uh, the river was rushing by, a turbulent, raging river moving by. And as they walked down towards it, it didn't just start melting away as they approached it. It stayed the same until their last footstep on dry land. That's the story of faith. God doesn't start making things look like it's going to go your way before you ever get there. God takes our faith right to the edge. And just before they picked their foot up for that last step into the water, it was still the same. The Jordan had not changed. It didn't even look like it was going to go away. And then, of course, they put their feet into the water. They had to have a measure of faith that God was going to work a great miracle here. Now, we have all these arguments that go around in in the evangelical circle about faith. And there are some who say that you've got to absolutely believe that God is going to do this thing that you've prayed for without any shadow of doubt whatsoever, and that's how God does it. But you know, that's a kind of faith that very few people ever have. But the fact that those four priests carrying the four corners of the ark on these poles were walking towards the river was an act of faith. If they had had no faith, They would have said, Joshua, go find another people to lead. (laughs) We're not going into that river. The fact that they walked and they walked and that they stepped into the river was an act of faith, a sheer act of the will. I mean, we just have to choose to obey. And that becomes in itself a statement of faith. 
We aren't always convinced in our heart absolutely, positively, without a shadow of a doubt at all that something's going to happen just because we pray for it. But as we move forward in the faith that God will work, He does. I mean, you've all probably heard horror stories like I have of, of a, a friend of ours who, who prayed that God would heal his eyes so he wouldn't have to wear glasses. And he was so confident he took his glasses and heaved them out into some river, you know, and then he had to go out and get a new pair. You know, if, if the faith has been implanted by God, that's one thing. But if it's a faith that we're trying to generate and becomes more presumption than anything else, that's, that's another story. These men are moving forward because God has so ordained it and so they step towards the river. Now, they had experienced miracles. They were experiencing an ongoing miracle every day. Manna still was settling on the ground. Every morning, manna was settling on the ground. And the miracle of the manna was an ongoing thing, but they had grown accustomed to it. What, what is that song about, I've grown accustomed to your face, or something like that? I'm not sure that that's exactly a, something you're saying good about the other person, but... Uh, they had grown accustomed to the manna, so they didn't even think of it as a miracle anymore. Didn't think of it as an extraordinary thing. How many uh, Israelites went out every morning and got down their knees and said, Oh God, I thank you for the... I'm sure there were probably a few. But the more, most just probably gathered it, just normal routine. They went through every day. It was a miraculous provision. And, and here, however, God was going to work a miracle unlike any of them had seen before except the few who had been 19 and under at the time of the crossing of the Red Sea or you know, in that age category. To instantly halt the flow of a hundred yard wide churning river would make a believer out of any person. And many of them who may have had doubts were about to become believers as they saw the work which God had done. Exactly exactly as God has said. And that's important phrase to always remember. Exactly as God had said. That's how things always happen. Exactly as God has said they will happen. The feet of the priests touched the water and that very moment the river ceased to flow. Splash! I think it's hard for us to imagine. The locations of the two places mentioned here are not known exactly. Adam and Zarathan. But um, the uh, student map manual, which has been put together by evangelical and non-evangelical and, and Jewish uh, people over there in Israel, have uh, placed it at a point which would be approximately 15 miles north of where the priests probably entered the Jordan River. And so what we're talking about is the river is stopped up there, and the whole riverbed becomes dry from that point to the point where the priests have put their feet into the water. And then as the water continues on down past them towards the Dead Sea, that part dries out too, or at least the water flows away. And, and we're talking about, first of all, 15 miles to the north. We're talking about another eight miles to the south. You were talking about a 23-mile uh, stretch of the Jordan River that's gone bone dry. Now, earthquakes have happened often in that region. Israel is located along one of the major faults of the surface of the earth, a fault line that runs all the way down through the Red Sea, in through the Ethiopian highlands, and all through East Africa, creates the East African Rift, 
and goes out to sea down near the mouth of the Zambezi River. A very long fault zone, very active one. There are volcanoes all along it. There are major escarpments all along it. The Araba, which is talked about in this passage, is, is that uh, gulf which comes up and then forms a valley that runs up to the Dead Sea. That's all a part of a downfaulted block that's part of this rift zone. So earthquakes have happened numerous times in that area. And there are records in the 13th century and in the early 20, 20th century of earthquakes that caused a portion of the bank of the, of the um, Jordan to collapse and to dam up the river for a few hours. And so there are some who feel that this is what God did, that God just caused an earthquake, caused part of the bank to fall into the river and dam up the river for a while till the Israelites got across. And I'm not going to say that God couldn't have done that. God could do whatever God chooses to do here to, in order to uh, provide a way across. But generally speaking, those who insist that you find a natural explanation for every miracle in the Bible are people who will not believe or choose not to believe that God miraculously intervenes in human endeavors. They're in effect deists. Deists are those like Thomas Jefferson who believe, yes, there's a God up there, he's a transcendent God, but he's not an imminent God. He's not down here. He's not working with, with human beings. He doesn't perform any miracles. In fact, the Jefferson Bible is one where all the miracles have been clipped out of the, out of the Bible. Jesus' miracles as well as Old Testament miracles. Uh, because God doesn't do that. It's not that he would argue probably that God couldn't, it's that he wouldn't. God just sent, set the world in motion, we're just supposed to live by its general laws, and God isn't going to intervene. And so there, were many, there are many who believe that today, and many times they're the writers of the commentaries. Unfortunately, I don't buy those commentaries, because I prefer commentaries written by evangelical scholars who have a sense of of the imminence of God and, and of the fact that God is working here in this earth amongst his people and, and trying to call out a nation unto himself. God may have used an earthquake. I, I don't know. They don't, it doesn't speak about an earthquake here. God may have caused a landslide which dammed the river. I, I don't know. That's, that's a possibility. But think about it. Just think about it for a minute. He would have had to have timed the landslide in such a way that it went out across the Jordan River so that as soon as the men put their foot into the water, the last of the water went by. Well, that's a miracle in itself, right? To time it like that? I, I think it's just as easy to think of God just saying, all right, water, you know? You're going back there and these guys are going across without some kind of a natural explanation of it. God has the power to pile the water in a heap, which is what the passage says, that the water was piled in a heap. Let me read a couple of verses. They're not on your outline, but a couple of verses back from that first miracle that happened uh, of the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. Go back to Exodus 15. You don't have to turn if you don't want to. I just want to read a couple of verses here. After the, the great crossing of the Red Sea, Moses was inspired to write a song. It's called the Song of Moses. And in it, he poetically talks about the disaster here. And in verse 8, he says, at the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. Now, this is poetic, you know. God doesn't have nostrils in the sense that we do. And, but somehow God miraculously separated the Red Sea. In a non-poetic statement back in the 14th chapter in verse 22, 
We read, And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Now, however God piled it up, and when we talked about Genesis, I mean, I mean we talked about the Exodus and, and the life of Moses years ago now, I made the comment of the fact that some of those commentators who don't like the idea of God intervening in some uh, miraculous way just simply say that, well, first of all, it wasn't really the Red Sea. It was some kind of a little swamp thing that was only a few inches deep anyway, and so a little bit of a wind blew it away. Or, you know, it was a strong wind that was kind of pushing the, the sea aside, but we noted at that time that I wouldn't want to be around a wind that was capable of pushing the water into two walls so that you could walk around walk in between. You know, talk, make a hurricane look like a, you know, like a gentle afternoon breeze in comparison. So it says here that it was like a wall to them on both sides, like a wall, just like an aquarium wall had been stuck up there, you know, and, and held the waters back. And this is the same terminology that's used here in this particular passage in Joshua. It's the same terminology, the same concept here, that somehow God was piling up the waters now, we are not told how long it took the Israelites to cross the Jordan River here. Uh, the implication is they crossed it in one day. Well, let's just say, for, for instance, that it took them, let's be real conservative, 10 hours to cross the riverbed, to get the whole kit and caboodle of them across the riverbed. If you have a river flowing at flood stage and you dam it up for 10 hours, you've got quite a pile of water there. And those of you who have seen the Jordan know that most of its course, there, there's not any great huge mountain right next to the river that could just fall in and block it and create a dam that could hold back that water for that length of time. And so it's, it's very highly unlikely that such a natural phenomenon was what we're reading about here. I think it's a purely miraculous event where God held it back by invisible, by his invisible power, and the water just piled up there. Because another thing would be, of course, that when the water came back into the valley, into it, if it had piled up all that length of time, you'd break the dam and it suddenly comes down. I mean, you've got this wall of water coming down the thing. And that would have been pretty disastrous, and it doesn't seem to be that way at all, as you read the explanation given in Scripture here. There, there's another miracle, though, here. And, and that is, it tells us in verse 17 of, of this passage in Joshua 3, that the priest stood on dry ground and that Israel passed on dry ground. How long does it take a riverbed to dry out if you shut off the flow? Probably not five minutes. <laughs> Probably takes a little while for a riverbed to dry out once the water has been turned off and, and is no longer flowing. One of the things to note about the Jordan is when you're down towards the Dead Sea, you're, of course, in the, in the lower part of the Jordan. You're, it empties into the Dead Sea, and, and that's the end of the river. It goes no further. When you're in that lower portion of the river, it is very meandering. The, the river goes like this, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And whenever a river does that, of course, what it's doing is increasing the length of the actual riverbed relative to the total length it's flowing linearly. And that usually reduces the velocity of the river to some extent. And when that happens, you have increased sedimentation because the capacity of the river to carry its load of sediment is reduced when you reduce the velocity. And, and so you should have a lot of mud in the lower part of the Jordan River. Now, obviously, there were some rocks because the 
priests were standing in a rocky area where they were able to gather some rocks, which they would take onto the shore and make a little monument. And we'll be talking about that. But I, I, would, I would argue that a bulk of the riverbed there was probably very deep mud. And so if, if you have the river gone and suddenly have this exposed riverbed, you're walking across it and it's very deep mud, you're going to lose a few people along the way, you know? God dried the riverbed. That was a miracle, just like when he dried the bottom of the Red Sea. That's why some want this big wind to blow, you know, blows the water up and then dries the bed real quickly, you know, so you can get the people across. I mean, who are we talking about here? The king of the universe, the maker of it all. If, if God, and later on we'll be talking about, if God tells the sun to stand still, it stands still. And you can think of all the horrendous things you want to think about related to what that might cause. The yeah, sun stands still. You know, that means the earth has to stop. That means a horrendous wind will blow around the earth because the earth is spinning at 1,070 miles per hour at its equator. And you suddenly, suddenly stop it. The wind keeps going. It's going to flatten everything. <laughs> I mean, who are we talking about here? If you can stop the earth, you can stop the wind. You can do whatever he wants. And so God simply ordered the river to cease flowing and the bed to be dry, period. End of argument, as far as I am concerned. We can bring all the naturalistic ideas we want to into this, but it's a miracle of God, and that's what it's intended to be. That's what's implied by the Scripture. God didn't have him build a monument to some earthquake or some natural thing that would happen other times in history and then have been recorded, once in 1227, once in 1924 or something like that, and possibly other times. What's a miracle about something that happens on other occasions for no reason at all that matters historically? Can we imagine the elation of the priests standing in the middle of the river? I mean, first of all, as soon as their foot splashed in the water, it stopped flowing. To me, that's another thing. <laughs> Going back to this damming of the river by some natural thing. If you shut off the flow of a river, as, as it continues on down, the latter part of the river is going to start dropping rapidly. And by the time the last water trails through, it's, it's already going to be at a very low flow. It won't be a flood stage anymore because you've shut off the continuing flow. So that's dropping the pressure behind it. And so the water is going to steadily drop in level and, and before the last of it goes by. And so they'd had to walk way out into the river down there before they could get any water to splash in. Their foot hit the edge of the swollen river and it stopped flowing instantly. There isn't any natural phenomenon that could have caused that to happen. None. Except God were to take Shasta Dam or some small version of it, just drop it, splash, right in the river, right next to them. It doesn't say that. The implication is God rolled the river all the way back to Adam and Zarathan. These elated priests walked out into the middle of the river, standing there holding this ark, and just, you know, I can't imagine, but the joy of the Lord was in their hearts. Where did the water go? And Israel is now coming past them in mass. 23 miles of the river, linearly, has been dried up. They can cross in mass, like the Oklahoma Sooners, in mass across the river into the promised land. Can anyone, could any of them doubt that God was in their midst? They all saw the river and suddenly the river's gone. As they crossed the river, the land on the west side didn't look any different from the land on the east side. <laughs> if you've ever been there, it's not terribly exciting looking land. A lot of brown dirt, a lot of rocks. But they were in the promised land and that was what made the difference. 
whether the land looked any different on the east bank from the west bank at all, which it doesn't if you've ever been there. It looks the same on both banks, almost the entire length of the river. The difference was they were now in the promised land. For 40 years, they had wandered in the wilderness looking for this moment, this very moment. Some of them, of course, wondered if they would ever experience it. And they were standing on holy ground. Not holy in the sense that the church has warped that word to put halos and, you know, something so that if you touch it, you profane it. Holy in the sense it was set aside, set apart by God for this people. That's what holiness really means. To be holy is to be set apart for God. And as soon as we are born again, we become holy in that sense. We've been called into his kingdom, set apart for his purpose. Most of us don't feel very holy in the human use of that word most of the time because we know we're sinners and we know we fail and we know we goof up and we know we have bad attitudes and we know we make wrong choices. But that basic holiness is there because God has ordained us to eternal life. And so he had ordained this land for them. It was the ground that had been set aside by God in his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for this people, for this moment. The moment had arrived. And I think as they crossed the river and stood on the other side on holy ground, they thought themselves invincible because look what God had done for them. His promises made so long ago have been fulfilled. I mean, Abraham lived 500 years before. That's a long time. How many of us would still be hanging on to a promise that was made before Columbus sailed? You know? Well, let's, let's see what uh, God had them do next. Chapter 4. Now it came about, when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, that God spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the, of the Lord your God and to the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign for you among you so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. This passage of Scripture teaches us a very important truth about the fact that God wants His people to remember the miracles He has performed. And he wants us to remember the miracles that he has performed for several reasons. First, it reminds us of who God really is. That we serve an almighty God who can miraculously, if he wishes, part the Red Sea, stop the flow of the Jordan, dry a riverbed bed instantaneously, or knock the walls of a fortified city down in a single blow. This is the God we serve. Not some tribal God, not some tutelary God of some little city over here or some little country, <laughs> but the overarching God of the universe, maker of all things. Even as we read back in the th early part of the third chapter where 
God says, Joshua speaks, and he refers to God as the Lord of all the earth. Twice he says that. He is the Lord of all the earth, folks. You Israelites, as you're ready to go, believe in him, Lord of all the earth. He can stop the river. He can take you across. And he will. I, you know, it's very encouraging to us to constantly remind ourselves that we serve the Lord of the universe, the maker of it all. Not some God who's locked in some titanic battle with another God and they just keep shoving back and forth. This is not Zoroastrianism. You know, where you have uh, Ahura Mazda on one side and Ahriman on the other side and they're kind of in a titanic battle back and forth, forces of good versus the forces of evil, light versus darkness, and you and I are caught in the middle and however it turns out in the end, why, you know, you're on the good side or the bad side. We're talking about the one who, against whom all forces arrayed in total are nothing. He could wipe out all enemies at the snap of his finger. <laughs> if he had a finger. You know, at the thought of his mind, he could bring Satan to an end. He could wipe it all out. This is the God we serve. And therefore, secondly, it strengthens our faith, not only in the fact that he is able, but willing. Willing to what? To lead, to provide, and to care for his people because he's promised all those things. To those who are his, he has promised to lead, to provide, and to care. He is able and he will. And, and with that faith, why should we be trembling or worried or concerned or anxious? You know, that's why the scripture says, be anxious for nothing. Cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he's able and he's willing. Now, we sometimes begin to doubt his, able, his ability, or maybe not his ability, but his willingness when we ask him for something and it doesn't happen because the scripture clearly take, teaches us that sometimes we ask for things that really aren't good for us or isn't his plan for us at this moment. Faith is learning from what God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. I am sufficient for you in every situation. God does not always perform a miracle. Israel saw the miracle of the collapse of the walls of Jericho. But did Israel, every time they approach a city, see the wall collapse in front of them? No. They had to take many cities by brute force. Yes, God would yet perform another miracle and hold the sun in the sky long enough for them to defeat another uh, army. But over and over again, I mean, it took them seven years to win the land. How many battles did they fight in seven years? A lot. How many walls did they have to storm? Many. God didn't always knock those walls down. In fact, Jericho was the only one. Only one day did he keep the sun standing in the sky for 24 hours. The rest of the time they had to deal with darkness when it came. And that's how God works. I mean, if, if life was nothing but a stream of miracles all the time, who wouldn't be a Christian? I mean, it'd be so obvious. People would be sucked in just as they, many were following Jesus because he was able to convert a few fish and a few pieces of bread into lots of food. And so a lot of people followed him. Then when he later on, he says, hey, now, uh, are you ready to, to take the hard things? You, will you eat my flesh and drink my blood? Of course, that was symbolic. And it uh, says many left him at that time. Because when you get down to the hard, fast facts of what it means to follow Christ, it's, a, it's another thing than just having all these wonderful things fall in your lap all the time. Thirdly, and hopefully, these miracles remind us of our obligation to be humble and obedient to an almighty, all-caring God. He doesn't give his good gifts for no reason at all. 
He gives them because there's a divine plan that he is endeavoring to fulfill. And our response to that divine plan is obedience, is humility, is thankful hearts. One of the biggest issues that changes the way we live is to develop a thankful heart. In everything give thanks because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So whenever we're in a situation and we refuse to give thanks, we are being disobedient because it says in all things give thanks. That doesn't necessarily mean we say, thank God I've got cancer. But I can say, thank God for what he's going to do through me in this trial. Having a thankful heart changes our outlook on everything. It does away with things that divide churches. It does away with things that divide couples or or divide groups. Because if we have thankful hearts, we can't be bitter. We can't be greedy and complaining. We, we see in the first verse of this passage that it wasn't Joshua's idea to build the memorial. It was God's idea. He told Joshua to do this. And Joshua appointed a strong man, from one from each tribe, to go out in the middle of the river and pick up a stone. They didn't pick up a pebble because this is going to be a memorial that's going to, memorial that's going to stand for a while. So they had to pick up a big rock. I got mine, Joshua. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it says, put it on your shoulder. It's a big rock. Pick up this big rock from the middle of the Jordan where the priests were standing with the ark and carry that stone to the site of their first encampment where they were putting their tents down for the first night in the Holy Land. They were to build a memorial there in the midst of that camp. Commemorating what? This miracle. Commemorating this miracle. They were piling the stones to commemorate what God had done for them. God doesn't give us miracles just to pass them by and say, thank you, God, for that miracle. Move on and forget all about what he has done. And he gives us a miracle that's to be a major monument in our lives where we constantly refer back to it and strengthen our faith and strengthen our obedience by remembering what God had done (coughs) at that moment. Verse 6 informs us that God intended for them to use this monument as a teaching tool so that when your kids come along and say, what's this pile of stones for? You can say, aha, this is what that pile of stones is for. This is what it reminds us of. And if you are familiar with uh, the college, Simpson College may know that for several years now, we have been building a stones of remembrance pile at the college based on this exact passage. In fact, it's usually read at each of the Stones of Remembrance chapels, which we have. And it's over on the southeast corner of the dining hall. That's where the little pile is. And every time someone wishes to testify to a miracle that God has performed in their lives or to a new commitment they have made, uh, many will get up before chapel with a stone they picked up from somewhere around on the campus And they will testify to that, and sometimes they'll write right on the stone, and then there is a page written out of their testimony, which is put in a remembrance book, and then that stone is put out there in the pile uh, for people to come along and say, what's this pile of rocks doing here? And, And people can say, hey, this is what God has done for people of our community over these past years. It's a pile of stone, a pile of stones of remembrance. And so that's what it was for, for Israel. And that's how it would be uh, worked. Neither the one built in the camp nor the one built in the Jordan is identifiable today. We don't know exactly where the camp, we know approximately where the camp. It's, it's just like the temple. You see, the Jews 
for a long time believed there's no way God is ever going to allow this city of Jerusalem to be taken so we don't have to worry because God will never allow his temple to be destroyed. Think again. Because the temple was twice destroyed. Flattened completely. The grand temple of Solomon was leveled to the ground. And then as Jesus had said to his disciples, not one stone of this temple will be left standing on another, which occurred in the year 70, a uh, mere 40 years after the death of Christ. The whole temple was leveled again. And when you go over there today and you go to the Temple Mount, you go to the retaining wall there, which was known as the Wailing Wall, called the Western Wall. It, it is a pile of stones that, uh, that mark the edge of the foundation area upon which the temples had been built. That has nothing to do with the temple itself. None of those stones are the temple. They never were part of the temple. They just hold up the platform on the top of which the temple was built. You go over there today, you will not find a single remnant of Solomon's temple and very little that can be testified as having had to do with the temple of Herod. Now, some Jews will say, oh, look down in this hole, look way down there, about 40, 50 feet, and you'll see some of temples, Solomon's temple. No, 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 no. None of Solomon's temple is there. Very little of Herod's temple can be pointed out to. So, you know, these, these piles of remembrance are there for our good, for their good. And as soon as they cease to function, God's not going to hang on to them because the whole earth, we're told in Peter, is going to melt with a fervent heat. So God isn't going to keep this thing at all. You know, he's going to start all over again with a new heaven and a new earth. Well, I better stop there. There's something more I want to say about this memorial thing, this remembrance thing, but it'll take a little while, so I'll pick it up there next week.